Good evening, this is Gary Kavner here on the right side. I'm here today with Coleman Hughes, who is a columnist for Colette. Coleman recently wrote an article uh, called Rethinking Abortion Advocacy, where he talks about why he is pro-choice and some of the best arguments for and against it, and a sort of critique of where pro-choice activists generally position themselves with the sort of uh, my body, my choice uh, style of, of line. Coleman, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Hopefully you're, you're doing well. Doing very well. Thanks for having me on. So I suppose the, the very first question before we kind of get into the article and we talk about it is just why did you decide to, to publish this article, particularly now? It's not, it's not a subject that wins you many friends, I've generally found, regardless of the side you're on, to say we need to rethink where we're going with this. So why now? Well, there was a law passed in Alabama uh, by uh, uh, signed into law by by the governor, which would ban abortion in every case essentially, and would make performing an abortion a felony punishable by up to ninety nine years in prison. And uh, it's it's very unlikely to actually go into effect, but it's nevertheless provoked a lot of controversy and activism. Uh, from the pro-choice side and, and lots of celebration on the pro-life side. And it's just kind of put the abortion issue back in the national spotlight. It's always lingering under the surface, but uh, because of this law, it's back in the spotlight. So I'm seeing people make arguments for and against in my newsfeed. And I, I, you know, I've been meaning to publish a piece like this for years somewhere. Um, but now just seemed like the right time since it was in everyone's minds. So I, I've heard uh, about that bill. I'm not sure it'll be terribly familiar to all of our listeners. Is this a bill that's actually designed to become the law of the land, or is this something that's been designed to go to the Supreme Court as a potential challenger to Roe v. Wade? Yeah, it's it's almost certainly designed to challenge Roe v. Wade. And whether it will even get to the Supreme Court, we'll see. Um, you know, the Supreme Court might just not, might just ignore it. But I think they're counting on Brett Kavanaugh as the swing vote being on the pro-life side and, you know, making a, you know, overturning Roe after some 40 years, 45 years. So put out something that's quite extreme, let it get to the courts, let the courts accept some of the principles in it and just undermine Roe that way and then do what you will afterwards. That seems to be the strategy. Just to, to start going through this article, I mean, the, the start of the article is about hum, how unpersuasive you find the my body, my choice argument. Could you just walk me through why what you actually find unpersuasive about it? Because it is one of the major arguments used, although I think it's not the most complicated one or the most complex one. Right. So it starts off with the premise that something that's your body is your choice, which is true in almost every case. You'd have to find really bizarre edge cases where that's not true. So like, if you want to get your ear pierced, you don't have to ask anyone. If you want to get a tattoo, if you want to donate your kidney, you can do all of these things and you don't have to run it by anyone else because ethically your own concerns are the only ones that are involved. You don't have to trade off a benefit to you against a cost to anybody else because it's just your body and your organs you know every part of your body just is you in some sense so you're, you're never gonna have a conflict between you and your ear about what you ought to do because your ear just is you so that that is clearly true 
There's a second smuggled in assumption, however, which is that a fetus is a body part, like an ear or a kidney or an appendix. That is the premise I find to be really unsupportable um, because your, your ear has no future as a being that can flourish and suffer nor does your appendix, nor does your kidney. So what, you know, just for, forget for a moment about the when does life start or when does personhood start question. There's just, a, there's just the fact that there are certain things that given enough time are going to become conscious creatures every bit as important as you and I, and there are certain other things that aren't. So to, to say, to, to imply that a fetus is a body part and that your actions toward it should be governed by the same principles that govern your actions towards other body parts makes no sense. And you know, if it were true that a fetus was just a body part, then there would be no reason at all not to abort a, a fetus the week before its due date, when it was, you know, in effect, a baby. Just a, you know anatomically exactly the same as a baby as a newborn baby do you think this is a sort of sleight of hand where if a is true then we can do b and you try and smuggle in a you try and smuggle in c into a or do you think people legitimately believe this and it's just a sort of mistaken train of logic i think it's the first one because people say quote my body my choice they don't say my body my choice and a fetus is a body part um, because it, it's actually kind of indefensible on its face. So if you just say A, if you just say A, C, and B is, is implied for the argument to work logically, but you don't say it because it's, so, it's such a bizarre claim to have to defend. Uh, if you just say it that way, then you don't really have to think it through. And if you don't have to think it through, then you don't have to be challenged by the illogic of it. Mm. Just on on the first part, where you're saying it's it's a right to choose to do uh, what you want with your body. Just on a a more philosophical level, you were talking about how that seems to be pretty absolutely true. But I know coming from my own stance, which is much more of an old style conservative, I think there are lots of times when society says you can't do what you want to do with your body. I mean, most laws, I would say, even things like licensing laws are telling you what you can and can't do through your actions, which is to say what you can and can't do with your body. Well, isn't the, I mean, I think a lot of licensing laws shouldn't exist, but not all, but but many, perhaps most, but isn't the rationale for them, at least if you're not licensed, you're likely to do harm to your customers or harm is, is going to come to customers. Like if we let whoever wants to become a dentist or whatever, the, the idea is whether true or not, you're going to bring harm to consumers that don't know how to determine the quality dentist from the hacks. So even there, like implicit is that you could do what you want with your body, but it's going to harm others potentially. I think a, a lot of it is that particularly in relation to the licensing laws. But I think mm -hmm. some of them are there either because it's simply societally disapproved that you do something without regulation or because they think you might harm yourself with it. But I think there are actually quite a lot of societally accepted times when people accept that you can't do what you want with your body and mm -hmm. a lot of countries suicide and euthanasia would also fall under that so yeah i, I know and, it's, and I'm, it's, I, I'm against those laws so yeah i, I mean 
you know, I think I think euthanasia uh, under certain forms should be should be legal. Um, I don't think suicide should be a crime of any kind. So I, I just for the record, I, I personally feel I'm fairly consistent about that principle. Yeah. And I, I think most it's a principle most people do believe in. Um, it's just coming from what I understand is not a terribly common political philosophy anymore, at least outside of America. It's always something I found really interesting, particularly during, I think it was the Supreme Court cases where Camilla Harris asked Brett Kavanaugh, could he think of any laws that regulated the body of men? And I was going, oh, there's, there's tons of them, but he couldn't seem to think of any. So mm-hmm. perhaps not even that common amongst Americans anymore. That's interesting, yeah. Moving on from that, then we go into, you do talk a little bit about the life or personhood argument. Um, do you consider that really that relevant to this conversation? Or do you think that's basically sort of a Zeno's paradox? It's true at some point, but it's not clear when. And trying to define an exact point is pretty much fruitless. Um, I think it, it's clearly, so the, the way I would put it is that it's very relevant to the debate, but it's not, it's not strictly an empirical question. The, the real question we ask when we ask when is something a person is when should we treat it as a person with a with an inviolable right to life? At what point should we treat it? Should we give it that untrade-offable right to coin a word? And that that question this it can get confused by believing that there's some objective moment where it becomes a person and we like scientists have to go out into the world and figure out precisely when that is i don't really view the question that way because there like you said there or like like i'll argue at least there is no point there is no point of instantaneous transition that's so compelling as in the case with something like death where we can point to a second where it wasn't a person and the next second where it was. So uh, yeah, that, that if there were such a point, it would probably be pretty clarifying. If, if a baby grew in a mother's womb in one second from, you know, from zygote to full, to full, like deliverable baby, we wouldn't really have to have this argument because it would just be so clear if it were something like death, but it's a gradual process. And there's no magical point along the path. So what we have to do, in my view, is look at the costs and benefits of the values on both sides of the equation, the ethical costs on both sides, and come to a, a compromise that is reasonable, where neither side gets everything it wants, which is the definition of a negotiation. But there is a, a kind of equilibrium that minimizes the costs on both sides. Do you think there is a sort of uh, a happy medium here relative to, to both sides? Because if you, if you think it's a person from the moment of birth, any death is clearly a big moral issue. So any abortion is a big moral issue. And if you think it's not a person... Sorry, you mean from the of, moment, of, moment of conception, right? Of conception, or, or, or any point on, really. Right. Whereas if you don't think it's a person until the moment of birth, any limitation is also unjust. So how do you, how do you square that circle? Uh, again, I, I would say, you know, it, it's not a negotiation if either of the sides gets everything it wants. But on the question of when is it a person, I drew an analogy in my piece to when is a human being an adult for the purposes of something like sexual consent, the ability to give consent. And that, that 
age in the United States, it's anywhere from 16 to 18, depending on the state. I'll just assume it's 18 for the sake of, for, for the sake of this conversation. Mm. You could ask the question, when does a teenager become an adult? Well, there's all kinds of ways in which science might inform that. You could ask, when do human beings become sexually mature? Science can answer that. We know it's usually before 18. You can ask, when does the prefrontal cortex, which governs decision-making and impulse control, fully develop? We know that's somewhere in the mid-20s. But science isn't going to answer for us when a human being becomes an adult. We decided on 18 because it was a reasonable compromise. We, we could certainly argue that it might be better if it were 17 or 16 or 19. And I think reasonable people could disagree. But ultimately, all of those lines that we would choose would be arbitrary. And, and it's, it's certainly tragic that there are, for example, people rotting in jail because they had sex with someone a week or a day before their 18th birthday. Um, that, that is in some sense an injustice, but what are the alternatives? Not having a line, adjudicating every single case of, of statutory, potential statutory rape, and trying to conclude whether this person was mature enough. We've decided that we just can't do that. We don't have the resources to do that. So we're going to draw this somewhat arbitrary line and citizens who want to be law-abiding are going to obey it. So I think something similar happens with the transition from you know, a, a sperm cell and an egg cell with, which combine to form a zygote, which is not all that different from either an egg cell or sperm cell, and then a, a baby, which is you know, just the cutest, most adorable thing that we all want to protect. There's no one moment, like, like with adulthood, where it all comes together. So I think both sides, you know, on the pro-life side, pro-lifers, in my view, should stop privileging the moment of conception as if it's somehow very you know, significant. And on the pro-choice side, people should stop privileging the moment of birth as if a fetus the day before delivery is all that different from when it's out of the womb. So, so we should just stop, stop focusing so much on, on those seemingly clear lines, acknowledge that they're actually arbitrary, and try to find a solution that represents a reasonable compromise. I suppose, I suppose my question there is, what is a reasonable compromise? Or is this really just a question of the composition of society, how strong either position is amongst the populace? Yeah, I guess in a, in a democracy, the, the reason that if I seem to be dodging, it's because I, you know, if you had come to me before we decided on an age of, of consent, of sexual consent, and said, Coleman, what are your thoughts on what the age of sexual consent would be, are? Mm. And I pulled a number out of my behind. You know, I, it would feel hubristic of me to do that. I think in a democracy, it's a decision that has to be made collectively. Um, and there's something a little bit presumptuous about a, a person saying, well, I have the answer for all that. That's, I, I have the answer to form the law of the land. So I think, I, you know, that said, I, I can say tentatively, and I really want to, I, I want to put the caveat here that the, the, the strongest claims I'm making have been up till now. But when I give numbers, I'm giving them with an asterisk that I'm I'm very persuadable and ultimately I believe 
the negotiation is, is one that society will come to, um, you know, as a whole. But many countries in Europe have uh, put the line at 12 weeks. Um, I can't remember exactly, but I think Germany and um, uh, Finland and, and several other countries draw the line at 12 weeks, which is often called the first trimester, uh, because you know, a woman often doesn't know she's, she's preg pregnant until several weeks in. That gives her several, you know, a month, perhaps a month or a month and a half to get an abortion. And, um, but, but it also doesn't impinge on the development of fetal consciousness, which most studies I've seen suggest starts around 20 weeks. So it, it, that seems reasonable to me. Again, I, I, I'm, I, I consider myself very persuadable, though, on that, because you know, ultimately it's a decision that has to be negotiated. It, it has to be acceptable. You know, it, ha it has to be maximally acceptable to both sides in the style of a, of a large group negotiation. Just to call back to uh, when we were talking about your issues with the with my body, my choice argument, you said it was a bad argument, but... If this is a case that this is going to be a social negotiation, which is largely going to depend on how many people believe each side to be correct, is it actually a bad argument? It may not be a correct argument, but it seems to be a persuasive argument. And if what we're, what we're looking for is a negotiation here, then surely what we're saying is persuasive, persuasive arguments are actually really the only important arguments. I actually disagree that my body, my choice is all that persuasive because even, you know, so far as I know, most pro-choice people do not think you should be able to abort, abort a fetus the week before its due date. So, so like if the, my body, if the, my body, my choice argument were that persuasive, then its implications, which is that you should be able to abort a fetus like a last minute ear piercing would be far more widely subscribed. So I'm actually not sure how persuasive it is. You know, it, it may be a good rallying cry. It's, it's good for energizing those who already agree, but I'm not sure people actually, even mo most pro-choice people actually agree with the logical implications of the argument. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I, I suppose I take your point that we're in an arena of persuasion and, you know, any, any, look at at societies throughout history will tell you that often whole societies can be persuaded of arguments that in retrospect we view as very very poor arguments uh, i think that's i think that's the price of democracy and you know we we've managed to make i think a lot of moral progress by having conversations and by making better and better arguments even if it took hundreds of years and i think that's kind of what the process of civilization has been in many ways. The thing I did note from your article is the repeated mention of capacity to suffer and flourish. Mm. Is that what you're using to kind of gauge personhood here? That this is effectively your ability to feel pain or pleasure or have potential, and that's what work should be decided upon, at least in relation to personhood? No. See, the, the thing about personhood is that there's actually no single attribute you can name that is the definition of personhood, including the capacity to suffer and flourish. Because you, you can just, by philosophical thought experiment, imagine a person and just whatever, whatever attribute you name, take that attribute away from the person, and they will still probably seem like a person, right? You can do it with consciousness. 
Like, you know, if some, someone in a coma still seems like a person, you can do it with suffering and flourishing, just have a person, but with no capacity for pain or pleasure. I'd still want to see that, that, that thing is a person if it has experience. Uh, you, there, there are like, you know, many, many different attributes like these that when they all come together, you know, most people are described by all of those attributes but no one of them is the hallmark of personhood, which is precisely what makes it so difficult to say when a fetus becomes a person, because there's no one master attribute that separates all persons from all non-persons. Uh, and that, that's precisely what makes it difficult. I suppose taking that into account, then, accepting that we, we cannot devise a clear line at which personhood is granted, would it not be... And assuming we accept that the the ending of the life of something with personhood is immoral, or at least something we don't want, would the principle of prudence then not move us towards lower term limits for abortions or the pro-life position? Assuming then that if you are incorrect, you have been less incorrect than if you went mm-hmm. in the other direction. Yeah, I, I don't see it that way, um, because... Uh, well, so somebody this is somebody made a slightly, you know, a slightly less sophisticated version of the argument that you just made on Twitter, I think, which was that if you had a like a Schrodinger's baby situation where there was a box in it and you didn't know if there was a baby in the box, there was like a 50 50 chance. Uh, shouldn't you err on the side of like not stomping on it, which it, like obviously, yeah, you should. Um, I think that's. The, the intuition you get in, in that scenario is pretty different than the abortion example because you know it's not as if uh, it's not like a binary possibility that it's either a baby or it isn't. It's just like in some sense, like with the age of consent, we are deciding um, where that line is. And, and so, for, for example, to go back to the analogy of the age of consent, you might say, well, clearly we don't want kids to be statutorily raped. Like everyone is for that, except pedophiles. All non-pedophiles are, are very in favor of, kid, of adults not having sex with kids. So shouldn't we err on the side of making the you know, age of consent as high as possible? It's like, well, no, not necessarily, because there are also costs associated with doing that, which is to say more people will be going to prison so it's 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 in the nature of situations where there's an ethical trade-off that the more you give to one side, the more you take away from the other. And where human well-being exists on both sides of the equation, saying you know, arguing that you should err on the side of one is synonymous with saying you should take away from from the other. So there's there's no solutions here. And, and to to make the analogy salient to the the abortion example. There are costs associated with uh, making it harder to get an abortion by giving women less time, right? Like, uh, so something like half of women who get abortions in America, at least, are below the poverty line and making decisions about family planning based on, you uh, uh, you know, the resources that they can already devote to the kids that they do have. Um, and, you know, there are costs associated with uh, having an unwanted child. 
And so, so you just have to consider the costs on, on that end as well. There are, uh, you know, there's the cost of illegal abortions, which have, which are generally unsafe and have been ubiquitous throughout societies and throughout, throughout history. So the lower you pull that line, the more costs you're adding to the other side of the ledger. So that's what I would say. But you don't believe on the balance that accepting there is a cost on one side and accepting there is a cost on the other, that prudence would move you in that direction. Like from from a 12-week line? To, to whatever, move you in a more pro-life direction or to a pro-life position, accepting that there is a cost to doing so, but saying that the cost, if you are wrong, is, uh, is lesser, effectively. I, I a little bit object to the framing of the question so that's, like that's it, absolutely fine. I can reword if you'd prefer. No, no, not not the wording, but the like. So the notion of if we're wrong about when the fetus becomes a person, um, I think that that it seems to me that kind of assumes that the answer is objectively out there, and we are potentially getting it wrong or right. To me, I view this I view this problem as a kind of big moral equation with extreme with, with high stakes on on both sides like the the high stakes on the pro-life side are you are canceling the future flourishing of a being something that would become something that given enough time would become something whose moral worth is impossible to doubt uh, that that's that's a huge cost but it's not an infinite cost and it, you know, I, I make I make the analogy in in my piece that something like forty thousand people die on on highways or in traffic accidents every year, and we could pull that down virtually to zero just by making the speed limit like five miles per hour, something hmm. very slow. That would have huge costs, like GDP would go down, um, and you know, low GDP would translate in all kinds of various ways into like lowered life expectancy for some people and perhaps deaths in its own in turn so like it it's it's not totally useful to make any of these values sacred you know we, we have to be thinking in terms of trade-offs even though it, it feels slimy to to do with human life we actually do it all the time without mm. without knowing or recognizing that that's what we're doing. So uh, I, the question of whether we're getting it right about personhood seems to me the wrong way to frame it. It frames it as if there is an objective answer that we, like scientists, have to go out and find. But I, I don't view it that way. Would it be perhaps better to consider it as a, what if, let's say, there's an extreme swing in societal view later to one extreme or the other? And that changes the equation then right or wrong in that sense, as in in the sense of societal approval and belief rather than objective truth. What do you mean by that? So let's say we have, uh, we have legal abortion now, and in the future, society and the members of society swing strongly to believe that that's wrong, that fetal personhood is exact, let's say from the moment of conception their moral calculus that they will believe to be correct will be that a great deal of harm has been done. Similarly, if society went the other way and believed in no fetal personhood until birth or even after birth, mm -hmm. a great deal of wrong would have been done there as well. So 
I suppose what I'm asking you there is really just where you would fall on it personally in relation to what could change your own equation of it. Like what could what could change my mind? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so I would say what people believe is ethically important in itself. It's one of many things that is ethically important. So if I snapped my fingers and all of America became pro-life to the point where, you know, the thought let like to the point where hearing of an abortion in the news became the equivalent of hearing like of, of a, like a school shooting. Like every time there was an illegal ab- abortion reported in the New York Times, it felt to Americans like Sandy Hook felt. Um, if that were true about America, uh, yeah, that would that would in itself be a kind of pro-life argument to a degree at least. It wouldn't be a an all-consuming pro- pro-life argument, but the suffering caused to people secondhand is an ethical dimension of an act itself. So I don't know that it has how much weight to give it, but it's not it's not nothing. As I said, coming from that more conservative direction and the idea of of prudence, I do find the idea that well, okay, if I'm because I obviously more in the pro life direction, I sort of go, okay, if I'm wrong, there has been a legitimate uh, removal of freedom from certain people. However, if they're wrong, the level of death in the world has increased. And to me, I would say that the removal of freedom, particularly because I believe that society removed freedom in nearly an infinite array of ways, is preferable to the destruction, either potential or actualized, of human life. Yeah, I, I would argue that you should imagine in more detail the costs of uh, of a life uh, of a world with no abortions imagine in detail you know, the women going into hotel rooms or you know or alleys with unsanitized or unsafe uh, you know medical tools and getting abortions from people who you know, are competent to a degree but not as competent as one would want getting infections from those unsafe conditions, uh, you know, the you know, having five children when you really can support two, when you have the time and resources and you're a single mother, for example, like what, what does, what is lost in a circumstance where you're, you're a child who now gets very little attention because uh, you know, you, you, the mother was not able to abort the subsequent children that she had. And of course, you might say, well, she chose to have the children, um, so shouldn't she face up to the consequences? Why punish the child for her decision, whether it's to get an illegal abortion or to have unprotected sex or whatever? Um, I think the kind of responsibility-based argument that we haven't yet touched but is occasionally made on the pro-life side, has a strong intuition behind it, and I, I understand it. And perhaps we want to get into it, but ultimately I don't think it's very useful. Uh, I think responsibility, you know, the levers of, of praise and blame are things that we, are things that are only useful insofar as they can actually change people's behavior for the better. 
when we have such strong natural urges, you know, millions of years of evolution conspiring to get us to see sex as, you know, in the moment of heat, the most important thing that can that you can be doing right now. Where, you know, it, it's just responsibility in that context doesn't get you very much. And evidence of that, in my view, is the fact that religious people and non-religious people, in America at least, get abortions at very similar rates. So the people growing up with the rhetoric of responsibility, you know, it's clearly not working very much. Um, so I don't know what the question was, but that was my rambling response. <laughs> no, that, that, that's fine. I, just on the first part where you were talking about the second order consequences, things like illegal abortions, that I, there is a point there that should be strongly considered. But in the same way, I would make the point that often, at least in Ireland, there is not an examination of the second order consequences of moving towards the more pro-choice argument. So, for instance, Ireland last year, abortion was illegal. We had a referendum. We voted to make it legal up to 12 weeks and then uh, effectively up to term for uh, anything that is a threat to the life of the mother or the child. Abortions in Ireland, according to the campaign for the removal of the Eighth Amendment, so from about as biased source you can get, but in the appropriate direction, said there were about 3,000 abortions involving Irish women, not just in Ireland, but across the world, people who'd gone to different countries. Estimates released by uh, the health department under FOI, Freedom of Information Request in Ireland, estimate that the abortion rate will go up, that instead of 3,300 abortions, we will now have 10,000 roughly a year, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, so I, I will accept your point. I think it is a good point. But I would also say, if you think the value of the unborn is not zero, twofold increase in numbers in a year is also a substantial increase in let's just say negative behavior or sure. negative worth sure i acknowledge that yeah um it, it's interesting though I, this is a thing it's like uh for for every cost on the pro-life side i i see a, i see another cost on the pro-choice side so you know when i'm talking to pro-choice people who are more uh I don't know, militant about it than, than I am, I, I end up emphasizing all the costs on the pro-life side. Haven't you considered these? Doesn't this matter? Um, and, and vice versa. So there was, um, I just read a, a, a pretty harrowing, I don't know if you saw this piece, I think it was in, in Daily Mail. Uh, it was a, the, a, a, an elderly mother of a son with Down syndrome writing to say that she, wish, she wishes she had aborted her son. I didn't see that that one, no. It is, you know, it, it's like the most, if you just, like, take a deep breath when you read read the title and then actually read it, it's, it, it's very worth reading. We're talking about a woman who might be in her 70s who is exhausted, uh, you know, who's, who's, you know, in any other scenario, her kids would be taking care of her. Mm. And she has an adult son with Down syndrome who she loves, and has loved and cared for his entire life. But, you know, she she describes trying to go on a vacation with her and her husband and her son to Greece. And they get on the plane and her son throws a tantrum as an adult-sized man. Mm. On the ground of the plane, he, he won't get up off the ground. And he's yelling and screaming. And they have to drag him off of the plane. And then they can't go to Greece. 
or she describes, you know, like how he, he's, he's constantly soiling himself. So she is having to essentially be a nurse her whole life, right? This totally constrains what she can do at, at, for, on her one life on earth. And she, she's essentially defending the 90 some percent of, of women who have fetuses with down syndrome, who abort those fetuses and saying it, it's really heartbreaking to hear her admit this. And I, I think it's a, it's a rather brave piece, but you know, so if, if life is truly sacred, if, 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 you know, the pro-life principle were to govern the land, which, uh, you know, like e- even she should not be able to have aborted that. And perhaps there's a, perhaps there's a way, perhaps there is a way that, you know, perhaps there are other solutions. Perhaps there is some way for uh, a child with Down syndrome to come into the world, but not have to be the responsibility of the parent their whole lives to the point where you know you have elderly women that are relegated to being nurses their whole life but i don't know i i mean i think in some ways that that highlights the importance of this issue because obviously whether or not something exists has massive implications further down the line all throughout its life regardless of if the child is disabled or not disabled, uh, because a child existing or not existing is going to be disruptive at the best of times. And I oftentimes find that one of the difficulties with this issue is that technically those issues are secondary, because this is a question about personhood and the way we should treat people uh, first and foremost. But those are important questions. But are they, I'm not sure they're the same question as to whether or not one should be pro-choice or pro-life. Uh, more so how we wish to form society after we're born and our political views thereafter. Which I think, mm. to be fair, I think is why, at least in Ireland, I know it's, it's different in America, a lot of the pro-life would be sort of, um, would be quite left-wing fiscally. Oh, a lot of the pro-life would be left-wing fiscally. Yeah, so they, they yeah. would be very into social supports and the right I mean, of the disabled. One, and... one of the things that the pro-life movement gets attacked for in America is for not being uh, left-wing fiscally. You know, how true that actually is. And also, you know, in general, I'm, I'm averse to arguments that try to try to call the other side hypocrites. Because the thing about hypocrisy is that you can pretty easily resolve it by saying, well, yeah, I should be for higher taxes as well. And now, and now you're just left holding their principle in your hand like, oh, if that makes any sense. It's it's something that does come up a lot. I, I There seems to be a thing of uh, prominent American pro-lifers sourcing abortions for their mistresses, uh, which doesn't really happen in Ireland. I don't think the Irish pro-life would let it happen. You would be persona non grata mm. if you were if there was a rumor of you trying that. But even then, and I, people do bring it up and sort of say, well, is that hypocritical? I'm not I'm not so sure it is. Because if you're saying if you're saying your social belief is that abortion should be illegal, and then you source an abortion because it's legal, I'm not actually sure there is a difference there. If anything, one can take that as proof. You could simply say, yes, it should have been illegal, mm-hmm. and then I wouldn't have been able to put pressure on my mistress to have an abortion. Right. But it's legal, so I did, and I'm right. human. Right. So I'm, I'm not actually sure it is hypocrisy. I agree with that. It's it, it reminds me of like for example. I'm pretty persuaded by the arguments against eating meat and against factory farming. And I was a vegetarian for a while, 
but now I eat meat and I have for years. It's not that I'm no longer persuaded by those arguments, but you know, it, but through a mix of willpower and health concerns and you know, just like willpower, <laughs> I uh, I eat meat. That doesn't actually mean that I'm wrong about the arguments against eating meat. That's you know, the thing about being a hypocrite is you have to have a principle to be a hypocrite. And it could be the case that your principle's 100% right. So it's not really an argument to call someone a hypocrite. It might be an argument against their consistency, but it's not an argument against their argument. So just, just to, to kind of go back to the article a bit more, because I think we could keep going in this direction for pretty much an infinite amount of time, and it would be fun, but I'm not sure how listenable it would be. Um, you're talking about the ethical considerations. This is one that you say favor the pro-choice side, and it's that many women who have an abortion now will have a child later. And you say that this is basically an equation. It's an equation where it's a world with N people and then we'll have N plus one people, regardless of if you have the child now or if you have an abortion now and have a child now. I suppose my question there would be, might that equation, might would it not more accurate to say the equation is, let's say, N plus one A? versus n plus 1b yes there is the same amount of people but not the same person yeah that's right that's implied so is that is that really an ethical consideration if you in favor about, of the pro-choice yeah i think well it, it's a, it's an ethical consideration so for example um let's say i'm pro-life for a moment and i'm talking about the number of lives that get aborted before they come into existence Let's say it's, I don't know, 100,000. 100,000 aborted babies, people that would have existed, lives that would have been among us if, had they not been aborted. Looking at that number, it, like the argument behind that number is look how many people there could be that there aren't, and isn't that an injustice to those people? Clearly it is. Um, I like the fact that I exist. You like the fact that I exist. Surely those people would have liked the fact that they existed if they did exist. My argument is that that number is misleading because there are people who would not exist if not for abortion, right? And mm. if, if, you're going to, if you're going to play the numbers game to begin with, which one can on, on the pro-life side, then you should play the full numbers game which is to say you should subtract from that 100,000 you know all of the you know the, the mothers who had an abortion at 19 and then went on to have a kid when they were you know 27 that they would not have had if they had not had that abortion at 19 the the kid born to the 27 year old mother would not have existed if she could not have gotten that abortion at 19 so there are there, no doubt that doesn't that's not going to bring the hundred thousand number to zero. There's still going to be a net loss uh, under pro-choice principles, but it can it it makes the pro-life argument it exaggerates the total toll of human life to not take those people into account. Hmm. But I suppose I I mean the thing about the equation really that I I find. Um, that you can question is is it fair to compare a world and say it's n plus one people against another world which is n plus one people when the people are different does it not this is not sort of an erasal of 
individuality there. Um, I'm not saying the equation well, is wrong. I'm just saying. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Uh, I mean, no, I don't. I don't think it is at all. I don't think people are inherently better than each other. In in this case, we're kind of abstracting and holding everything constant. We're assuming that like. Obviously, a hundred Mother Teresas are better than a hundred Hitlers, but in the generic case, a life is a life. So I, you know, it's not clear to me. Well, I, 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 this may be a question of phrasing. What I'm, what I'm questioning here is where you say, if someone has an abortion and then later has a child, yes, the numbers are the same, mm-hmm. and they may retain the same. But to simply say they have another child, is that not negating the fact that the first child, even if the numbers would be absolutely the same? was would have been different or unique regardless of if their lives would have been better or worse and so to simply say the numbers are the same but wouldn't the second child also have been unique it would have but the question is what's the difference well i would say there the uh, question is you can have a unique child with no potential loss of life or you can have a unique child with a potential loss of life well yeah i guess i guess then we get in we get back into the you know when does life begin thing but i mean the the way i view it it's like we're talking about human flourishing period i feel like that 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 for me is the master value so canceling flourishing that otherwise would have happened is to me the greatest harm exacted on society by the pro choice principle and if you're talking about preventing life that would otherwise Preventing flourishing that would otherwise have happened. You know, clearly aborting a child, aborting a fetus is doing that. But there's also flourishing that would have happened if you did not abort a child. And in, in, in some cases, obviously, not not all and not not even most necessarily. But in many cases, there is flourishing that should be factored into the equation, like in, in the specific example of like the twenty seven year old mother that that I gave which is a realistic example. Mm. Um, you know, so it's the, the, if flourishing is the master value, then it shouldn't matter whether it was a life that was canceled because you aborted a, a two, you know, a four week, a fetus at four week weeks, or whether it's a life that didn't come into being at all because you, you know, you were caring for your eight year old and, weren't going to get weren't going to have any more kids for, for me it's just prevented flourishing on both sides of the of the scale so if you were going to have john and then you didn't have john you said you had mary instead years later on a morally equal plane effectively yeah in turn yeah in terms of yes more or less because well, what i'm concerned with it is just you know the flourishing of human being period so there's a question, talking back to when you were talking about the second order consequences of the pro-life position, one of the things you put forward was people having greater numbers of children than they may have otherwise have chosen to. On the basis, it's very difficult to actually measure the potential for human flourishing as anything other than the absolute number of people. Would that not indicate that having more children would in fact be the route to greater human flourishing? Um, given the difficulty in actually quantifying the potential for human flourishing in any individual life and the great ease in determining whether or not that life exists or not. I'm not sure I understand the question. So you were saying that the pro-choice side would have children being born to women who didn't want to have children, that there would effectively be more children. Mm -hmm. So if there are more people, 
and each one of those people has a potential for growth and fulfillness is that not and you're looking to maximize human fulfillness and potential for fulfillness is that not a greater potential than the pro-choice position even if those infants are born into slightly worse lives given the difficulty in actually quantifying any individual's potential for growth um it depends i mean again i, I two things i would say one is the potential for for flourishing is not the master value the master value is the realization of flourishing but how do you measure that well you i mean you can't exactly but you know you can there are there is a whole field of happiness research that finds you know people are happier in wealthier countries um people are happier when they have tight knit communities etc there are ways to measure happiness that are imperfect but better than nothing and you know in the in the in the case of you know being a moral philosopher who cares about happiness there are many such philosophers that have you know come up with thought experiments like the famous one by by Derek Parfit um the late oxford philosopher had a thought experiment called the Repug- re- the repugnant conclusion um in which he essentially described a world where the population was so high he, he basically compared two worlds one with fewer people one with more people the world with fewer people had the average person was much happier but the world with more people though the average person was just above misery there were so many more people that if you summed the happiness that second world was a better world and he tries to devise all these arguments for why the first world is really better and not kind of all of them fail and uh you're left with this kind of repugnant conclusion that most of us would just on a gut level disagree with which is that a world where everyone is where there's just like billions and billions upon billions of people all just above subsistence barely living a life worth living that's not a world that seems 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 good to me so you know if we're the quality of life question is something that i think in general favors the pro choice side to some degree why because is that if if we're i mean because the 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 logical implication is that of of by the way i see it, of the argument you're making is the more people there are the better which is generally true everything else held equal but that everything else held equal is a a very big and important caveat and there's a lot contained there so if it were just good to add more people and we didn't have to worry about the consequences then you get to a kind of repugnant conclusion situation so quality of life has to be a very important consideration i mean there is that thought of experiment does have one very big thing about it it assumes the world with more people that it's only the sum of happiness that is greater but what if the actual average of happiness is greater oh yeah well then that's a different thought experiment then that, then that's clearly a better world so I, i yeah but that seems to be the issue here we're saying that it it could be a worse world but just there's so many people but it needn't necessarily or even be terribly likely to be a worse world that's an assumption that i don't think we have enough information to really make um well so there's a kind of one of the things i think about abortion is i i kind of view it so let me make a brief analogy um fa hayek had had a great famous essay called uh i think the the use of knowledge in society something like that 
where he talks about how information in a market is distributed and not held in any central position. Like the, you know, the mayor of New York does not know how much bread New Yorkers need to eat today. In fact, no one bread dealer does. All, all, you know, just the individual deli knows how much its consumers will buy and then multiply that by thousands and New York feeds itself every day through this Mm. kind of distributed miracle. There's a similar principle, I think, that happens with ethical knowledge, ethically relevant knowledge in abortions, which is to say, usually the the person in in the best position uh, to know whether bringing a child in the world will be will will harm uh you know a family or not generally is the the person closest to the situation the people closest to the situation the mother who is pregnant the man who got her pregnant etc um and obviously there are cases where that's not true where someone where a woman could bring the child to term and it would have a perfectly happy life and really be fine but there, there are so many situations where it's not, where you know, bringing the child to term would cause all kinds of havoc, um, perhaps because of who, who fathered it, or because of children that already exist, or any number of variables that are unknowable from the outside, but only known to the people who are close to the situation, that I think there's a similar principle that I agree with you. It's hard to tell from the, from from our positions about the the abstract question of like summing the happiness of all of those children who would have existed, or summing the like the 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 effect that they have on the world. But there is a kind of Hayekian principle of that ethically relevant knowledge is distributed much better in the minds of the people making their specific decisions, if that makes so, any sense. I, I, it does, but just in relation to that principle and to move sort of from, from that to actual uh, an event that's just happened in Ireland, I think the issue with that, um, I think the argument is generally correct, but in relation to certain things, people do not make their decisions in a void. They make them... Uh, surrounded by social inputs, social bias, their peer group, what society says is correct and what society says is incorrect. And I know one of the major concerns for me, I mean, I'm not actually terribly concerned with the legal status of abortion. I'm concerned with the societal view of abortion, because I think a society in which abortion is legal, but abortion is socially viewed as acceptable and unimportant is a worse society than one in which society in which abortion is legal but frowned upon mm. because i think the numbers will actually be it mm-hmm. so to give you give you an example recently we had a case in ireland where a couple went to the national maternity hospital and they did a test that came back and said that their child uh, had a condition incompatible with life i think it was uh, trisomy 18 or 28 which is uh, edwards syndrome and the doctors they'd done an initial test and the doctors told them not to wait for the second test because it, there was no point and there was no hope and an abortion was uh, the only option. Subsequent to the abortion, it came out that the child did not actually have Edward syndrome mm. and was in fact perfectly healthy. Mm. That to me, I think, is sort of the great argument against positions like that in relation to abortion. The social positioning of that was 
well, it is disabled or it is unlikely to live for very long, therefore end the pregnancy now immediately. And though the couple then made their decision based on that and based on the information they got from that, and now it's created a situation in which the couple appear to be suffering deeply because of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that would be my my argument against that, that people are very informed by the society they're around. And sometimes that may lead to negative outcomes. Well, yeah. So, Carmen, it's it's been great to have you on. But just before we wrap up, you wrote this to explain why you are pro-choice, why you don't find a lot of the pro-choice argumentation very effective. And I suppose, what do you actually want the pro-choice side uh, activists or people even just who are on that side and are not activists to take from your article? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think probably two things. I want to save, <laughs> this sounds somewhat grandiose, but save the movement from itself in the sense that, you know, w- when you're making an argument that really doesn't go through logically and no one on your side is going to point it out, you don't believe anything the other side says because you believe them to be in such bad faith and your argument is just totally unpersuasive to people who don't already agree because they see the illogic of it, that's not, you know, that's not persuasive in the long term. Like, you know, opinion on abortion hasn't really moved in this country for several decades at this point because it's not a real debate. Uh, like, the sides aren't making contact with one another. So my hope in the first place is to make contact with the other side by not making bad arguments. And then secondly, to allow in the possibility that there are good arguments on the pro-life side without feeling like that threatens the ability to be pro-choice. So, you know, understanding that, you know, rather than accuse pro-lifers of quote-unquote just wanting to control women's bodies, when you know that that's that could occasionally be true but it is certainly not the principle on which the pro-life position is based and it's you know it's clear to me that you should give a summary of your opponent's arguments that they would recognize and sign off on sign off on and to stop i guess like pathologizing disagreement on this question and i suppose that would be on both sides like Pro-lifers are not crazy. Pro-choicers are not crazy. For, for, there are crazies on both sides at the extremes, but you know most people, you know most people care about human life and babies, and also want to give you know potential mothers some choices. And it, it you know so I guess what I want them to take away from the article is that it's possible to be pro-choice, to not make illogical arguments for the pro-choice side, to make better arguments, and to recognize that there are good arguments on the pro-life side as well. Coleman News, it's been a pleasure to have you here. It's been a pleasure to be on.